Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Ephesus, Smyrna, now Pergamum. Verse 12. And to the angel of the Lord in Pergamum writes, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's home is, or Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept the teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who is in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Father God, thank you for your word. May this be a warning for us that we do not make compromises in our life. Um, may we not uh, try to toy with sin, but may we take sin seriously. We hope, Lord, that your word will impact our hearts and change us so that we are softened to the things of your word and uh, despise the things of our flesh and the things of the world. We thank you for this time. Praise your son's name. Amen. Jesse Woodson James. He is known. You listen to watch some old Western movies. I'm sure there are probably some new movies about him as well. He's a notorious outlaw back in the 1800s. He's uh, known to rob multiple banks and trains and is exactly what you think. He has a whole gang of groups and they all ride horses and they fire their guns and they go into this, you know, whatever, whether it's trains or, or banks or just general or just random people. They're known for their robbers, robbery spree throughout the 1800s. And uh, they targeted everyone. And this robbery, this series of robberies lasted for about 16 years across the entire Midwest. And then randomly, it came to halt uh, in 1876 when, uh, when one of the gang member, when, when the gang member murdered two people during a, a bank robbery that did not go well. Uh, several gang members were captured, uh, but Jesse James managed to escape. Um, robbing just one more train in 1800. So it was like his, uh, his, his last game before uh, he quits the, the outlaw game. Uh, but there, there was a uh, bounty on him. The, the, the governor of Missouri gave a bounty on, um, on, of $10,000 back then, which is our equivalent to about almost $200,000 now. And they said whoever catches him uh, will receive this money. And turns out Robert Ford, one of his own members of his own gang, would be the traitor. On April 3rd, 1882, he killed Jesse James by shooting him in the back. And uh, this guy, Robert Ford, uh, not, oh, he, he didn't get the money that he, he was hoping for um, because the Missouri governor had promised the brothers their crimes would be 
pardon instead. Uh, these guys were criminals and say, hey, wait a minute, you just betrayed your own guy. So they, instead of giving him the money, they say, okay, we'll, we'll pardon your sentence. Uh, afterwards, Ford himself uh, was murdered by another person. Um, and the reason why he did it was because he wanted to be, um, he wanted to be uh, famous uh, for killing the ultimate coward. Um, obviously, we don't remember this individual. For, so this betrayal was for nothing. The death of Jesse James was an inside job. And even the, the death of Robert Ford was also an inside job. And we must understand that sometimes the biggest threat to ourselves are those that are inside. Um, when we think about the church, when we think about the gospel, the biggest threat to gospel ministry is actually not from the outside. It's not from some politician. It's not from some sort of religious group. It's not from some sort of atheist group or, or scientific group. It's not from anyone from the outside. Though these things are threats, the biggest threat is actually from inside the church. When you compromise, the advancement of the gospel gets halted. And the reason why that is, is because the people inside, the people that are in the church, live like the world. Again, it's an inside job. Those who decide to live sinfully causes uh, damage to the, to the gospel goal. We want to be a light and salt to the world, and we fail to do so when we live in sin. Why? Why is that? Because if God's word is not, ser if it's not taken seriously by those inside the church, then why would people outside the church take God's word seriously? We call this compromise. The compromises that you make, the compromises that you uh, make in your own life, the you know, giving up uh, momentary uh, pleasures of sin, uh, instead, of, instead of giving those things up, you, you dive into your sin. You give into sin, and the world takes notice. The biggest threat to the church is people within the church. And in a lot of ways, the biggest threat and the call to action for all Christians then is to repent of our sins. We need to confront sin in each other's lives and we need to turn away from sin. Sin needs to be far from us. If you want to show the growth, if you want to show the world that the, the, that the gospel matters, and you need to take it seriously yourself. If you allow sin to overtake your life, then you forfeit gospel grounds. When a church compromises, when they choose to give into sin, even subtle sins in your own life, the Lord removes his blessings. We know that this is a pattern on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God, uh, um, he hates compromise from the Israelites. He tells the Israelites to devote their entire life to him, to give their heart, mind, and soul, devote their life to following and submitting to his word. Yet, yet we know Israel failed. They have all these idol worship, and it led them uh, to to compromises that eventually make them judged by the Lord. Judgment comes to churches that compromise. Real, and again, I just want to remind all of us that all these seven churches are they're real churches with real people, with real congregation, with real elders, with real problems. These are real places, and each of this church. Jesus deals with them, particularly in their own context. Um, and he deals with them accordingly. Their greatest threat um, is, you know, it's, it's, although it's set there in time, I do believe that each of the end, at the end of each of these uh, passages, um, 
It says that to the churches, it means that the principle transcends through time. So though the target audience are these individuals, the sins that they commit are, are, could be said about us as well. Now, let's, as we get, before we get into the text, I want to just talk about Pergamum for a little bit. Remember Ephesus, that this was the church that was um, one of the most uh, famous churches. It was like a very wealthy place. Oh no, Smyrna was a wealthy place and Ephesus was a very beautiful place. Uh, Pergamum is the place that is known for their intellect. It's known for their knowledge. It's the place that you, that you go to if you want to learn. Um, it's like where all the, I guess in our, in our context would be like, it's like the Stanford, you know, it's like the place where if you think of uh, Pergamum, it's a place where people go to acquire knowledge. Um, books were made there. Lib there was like the first, one of the first libraries ever made and it was like 2000 books, which doesn't seem much to us because we have, you know, library books that are like, those are tens of thousands of, of books. But remember back then they had to hand copy everything. So 2000 copies of books were, was, was considered amazing. Um, it, it, was, it was known for their medical knowledge. Uh, There's learning and about how they were supposed to use I mean, they study things like bones and blood and everything, like the physical body, but they always infused it with some sort of pagan worship. So they'll say things like, if you, uh, you know, if your blood is running this way, it's because something with the gods are punishing you. And one of their most famous gods, I don't know how to say, their to say this individual's name, so I decided to draw him out for you, is this little creature here. It's this little person, and he has little ha snakes as hands, and he just hisses, and he hisses, hisses. This is one of the gods that they would worship in town in Pergamon. He was um, <clears throat> how you would practice your worship uh, of him, and usually it's pertaining to health. Like when you're sick, you would go to this temple where there's this weird guy with deity with a whole bunch of snake hands, and what you need to do is lay on the ground and just will sleep there at night. And this, and then those like I guess those temple guys would just let some snake crawl around all over you. And the idea is that if the snake uh, slithers over you and you stay asleep, then you will be healed. But if the snake slithers over you and you wake up, then the healing will not work. And you can see it's kind of hilarious because then you, you can imagine like, oh, I'm struggling with um, you know, sleep. And then like, oh, maybe the snake God will help me. And you're supposed to sleep in a place knowing that some snake is going to crawl over you. And if you wake up, it's like, oh, well, well your problem can't be solved because you, stay, because you, you woke up when the snake was doing its thing. And you could imagine this is the this is the what was considered the most intellectual place, and yet they still do the snake worship thing. Um, they were people that cared a lot about um, what they what we would call science, but they in their case they they would see as like you know medicine. Um, they they love they 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 cherish their intellect. Um, not only were they known for their intellect, but these people were also known for parchment. Uh, this is the things that Paul would mention, or actually all the New Testament writers would use um, like material from this land to write the New Testament. And that's really cool. And, um, and so this, this area is known for um, wanting to know more about how the world works and, um, and is always mixed with pagan worship. Again, the background of this entire book, we have to understand that John is writing this book, the Apostle John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He was one of the inner circles of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he is a last living apostle at this point. He is exiled in Patmos, and Jesus tells him to write these letters to all of these churches and you know, throughout the rest of the book, as well as what, what, what is to come. <clears throat> but he wanted to write, uh, Jesus wanted John to write uh, to these uh, different churches to um, either to confront them on sin or encourage them. 
Um, and this is what we've been trying to go through each and every single one of these books. This is um, using God, uh, using Christ's standard as for our standard in the church today. Um, we, although we're not like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum exactly, there are things that we will do in our own life that may parallel theirs as well. In Pergamum is not that far from SF. SF is known for um, you know, the medical advancements. They're known for um, you know, the, all the information, the tech stuff uh, is here in the Bay Area. So we can understand a little bit about what it's like to live in that context. So there's temptation, again, in the, in the Christian world at times to follow or to compromise and to give into this, into, into this uh, thinking. Pergamum was about 70 miles north of where Smyrna is. And, um, and this is, again, a, a very important place. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't, actually, the entire New Testament doesn't explain who established this church. Um, there aren't any records of this. Some people think Paul might have established it in one of his missionary journeys, but it's unknown. But this church is uh, is a real church, and uh, Jesus has something to say to these churches. And again, if you were with us the last two messages, you know that the outline is going to be the same. We're going to talk about this, this church's strength, the church's weakness, and this church's response. And I hope that as we go through this text and through this church, that you can you can check your own heart. Don't look at the, our church as a whole, although that may be helpful to some, but don't critique, don't use it, this as a message to critique our own church or any other church. Rather, use it to evaluate your own heart. Are you like this church? Do you have these churches' strength? And do you also have these churches' weakness as well? And if you have these churches' strength, excel in those areas. But if you have these churches' weakness, then you need to repent of those things. So first, Pergamum's strength. Pergamum's strength, verse 12. And to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. <clears throat> you recall when I said uh, a few weeks ago, the angels, I don't think it's like the seraphim or the cherubim type, it's just a messenger. It's a messenger that is, um, is a messenger of, of the church, probably some sort of elder. He probably read this and went back to Pergamon and read this to them. And it says here, the one who has a t the sharp two-edged sword says this. Um, the sword uh, back then was known as a judge. Um, this is one that sort of executes uh, the law. And that's why in Romans 13, actually, when it says that the, gov the, the government does, does not wield the sword for nothing, it's designed so that the person who wields it will use it, it will have power over life and death. And Jesus is saying that he is that. He's the one with this sharp two-edged sword. And we know from scripture, from Hebrews 4, chapter 12, is that, that this is his word. That the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And God will use his words uh, um, out of the mouth of Jesus to confront this church. You'll notice in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This phrase, dwell, it's just constant. It's a permanent residency. These people were in Pergamum, this church here. They did not, it's not like when we think of our time where people kind of relocate and after a few years they relocate again. But this church, when they were established, the people stayed there. They were faithful. They wanted to be a light in, in light of all of these crazy pagan religions that were going on. Um, they stayed there. Uh, and it's interesting that they say, 
you do, um, I know where you dwell, the, where you have your pers- permanent residencies, where Satan's throne is. Uh, this isn't to say that they were in hell, because you know, hell is not actually where Satan's throne is. Satan doesn't even have really a throne. Uh, he's just an, he's just a, a fallen angel wreaking havoc all over the place. And one of the things that he does uh, to cause havoc is to have false religion or false ideas and false thinking. He uses these things to corrupt the world. Uh, whenever you see scripture talks about the powers and domain, dominions, these are in the context of how the devil uses um, the system, the intellectual system to try to get people um, to buy into the things of the world, to buy into his lies. That's why our weapons are not against bone and flesh, but rather it's, it's an intellectual type of religion. We want to use God's word to engage the mind of people. And Pergamum was like that. They were there. They were established church in light of all of these pagan activities. They were faithful in that way. They held fast uh, to the truth, even when it was not popular or easy to do so. Notice that they were holding fast and they did not deny my faith. It's important to know that it's Jesus, it's God's faith. It's a gift from the Lord. He gave this gift of salvation to them and they kept on believing. And as a Christian, you too can do this well. In our times, we can be living in a place where there's a seemingly hostile environment where they hate God and they have this abundance of of false religion all around us and deny um, God and everything. But we can reject the right philosophy. We can reject all philosophy. We reject all um, uh, false thinking. And that's a noble and right thing to do, to hold fast and not deny Jesus. And that's a good thing. And that's what we should be, just like how Pergamum was. In fact, it even says that uh, even uh, even in the days of Antipas, and this is a very unique character because he doesn't really show up anywhere else in Scripture. Antipas, if you were to break his name down, anti is like against, pos is all. So this guy, he was a believer, and he was against all things. And it's really cool because the way, I mean, when we think of names, like when I, when I, when England, in Western thinking, Westerners, when we think, when we name a child a name, it's usually because we think it sounds cool. In Eastern uh, countries, um, like Asian uh, countries, they usually name their kids with the hope that they live up to that name. Uh, my name in Chinese is it's supposed to mean smart, and I have yet to live up to that. Uh, my name, my English name is Raymond, which means wise, and I have yet to live up to that as well. <laughs> um, but Antipas, he was he lived up to that name. He went against all uh, everything, uh, every other false religion. He he attacked, he was anti-everything. Um, he was anti-everything that was against the Lord. He was known as the witness of God. In fact, this word witness is where we get the idea, the, the, the Greek word is where we get the word martyr from. He was a witness of the Lord. And eventually this word would morph uh, so that everyone that, um, that would use the word witness, they would actually associate with some sort of religious persecution. Um, so these Christians were, especially, you know, you know Stephen and others as well that were killed for their faith, and Tapas is one of them. Their faithfulness as being a witness to the Lord is what got them killed. This is the point when they say, oh, he's a witness of Jesus. It implies that this guy was killed for the faith. Um, his witness costed him his life. Now, I wonder if this could be said about you. Do you or will you hold fast and not deny the faith when things get hard? Uh, last week I talked about how Smyrna was a church where there was um, just a, it was just it was filled with tribulation because there was so much um, persecution going on, and um, 
you know, again, S Smyrna was not the only church like that. There were a lot of churches around that time and throughout history that there were persecuted for the faith. Now, would you be able to have the same type of faith? The same, would you hold fast to God and his word? There was this Antipas, this, this person was known as a faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He was killed and uh, somehow, I don't, uh, I don't have research on how they killed this person, but then he was somehow, he was killed in front of the church. The church watched him. They, they, they watched this person get killed before them. And it's probably because, um, you know, just making the same connection between the, where Satan dwells and Satan's throne is probably something with the pagans' religions. Uh, they, they did not believe in their practices. And as a result, they ended up being killed for it. So that was their strength. The church uh, had this devotion to the Lord. They held fast to God's word. And they did not deny the faith. Now let's look at their weakness. Our second point is Pergamum's weakness. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is actually kind of scary to think that Jesus knows a few things. It's not just one thing that they have, but there's a few things wrong with this church. And I wonder if Jesus was to look at us, can, they, can he identify just one error? Because we think, oh, if this is one thing, then we could just work on that. But if he said there's a few things or many things, then that would be very scary for us because that means that there are a lot of things that we need to work on. And again, don't think of the church as a whole, just think of just individually, because the church is made up of a collective of individual believers. And oftentimes, um, the, the state of the church is, is based on how individuals are doing in their walk with Christ. So these, uh, Jesus has a few things against them. There are areas in their life, and um, though they were faithful in, in proclaiming Christ, there are other areas in life that they were not faithful. This is here the teachings of Balaam. This is from Numbers 22 to 25. If you remember Balaam, he's the he was a false prophet that was hired by Balak. He wanted to, Balak wanted to curse Israel, so he hired Balaam to go. And on the way uh, there, Balaam got stopped because uh, he remember he's the one riding on his donkey, and then a, a donkey. And Balaam uh, came across, well, there was the angel of the Lord blocking him. And um, Balaam didn't see it. He was kicking his donkey and the donkey spoke to him. He said, I'm not going to do this because there's an angel right there. And then the Lord opened his eyes and sees that angel. That's the same Balaam here. And uh, Balaam was supposed to go, a hire by Balak to go and give a curse to Israel. But every time he spoke, um, he just spoke good things about Israel, about how they're going to win, how God's going to bless them. And if you imagine being the guy that hired Balaam, this must be infuriating. You're like, oh man, I paid you so much money and I can't get the money back. Why do you keep blessing these people? But Balaam said, look, you cannot curse what God has blessed. But instead, he had another, a very cunning idea. He said, instead of calling, uh, instead of um, declaring a curse, why won't we come up with a way um, that they would curse themselves and what he would do he suggests that maybe we get all the other nations and all the women in the other nations to go and seduce them so that they will fall into sexual immorality and god will curse them themselves um, that god instead of them doing the curse god will do the cursing 
and it eventually God had to, and that's what happened. The Israelites fell in sexual sin and God had to intervene uh, because he needed to stop the moral decay that was happening in the camp of Israel. And it says here that the teaching will have to put a stumbling block before Israel. That's the same idea here that um, the, he, it, Jesus here is using this reference to talk about how the people in Pergamum are falling into sexual sin, that somehow there was some sort of false prophet that, that, that caused a stumbling block for them, and they fell. They fell back into their old sinful ways, and, um, and that's a defense to the Lord. At the end of verse 14, it said, and to eat the things offered to idols. Some, there were different um, commentators to debate what does that mean, like were they getting food from these pagan temples, which again, it's possible because the pagan temples were like the big place and they're offering all of these sacrifices and some Christians may have went there and violated their own conscience and still ate these food. Uh, some others, some people believe that it's they're fellowshipping with other religion, that they were eating with them. They're like saying, oh, these are my brothers and uh, sisters. Even though they themselves held to the true faith, they call, they have some sort of um, unequally yoked relationship with people there. And it could be both. Um, and some of the people at the church held on to moral compromise. Instead of clinging completely onto Christ, they have one hand on the Lord and another hand on sin. This church had a lot of faithful saints, but they held on to sin that overshadowed them being a greater influence, a greater light to the world. Some of them brought into, uh, brought, was brought into the, um, brought into, was brought into the sexual norms of the time. You notice that uh, this uh, verse 15, it says that so you also have some who in the same way held the teaching of Nicolaitans. I mentioned them a few weeks ago. These were individuals that, that claimed to be Christians that lived a sexual immoral life. Uh, they, they held to the sexual norms of the day. Nicolaitans were people that just thought, oh, well, we, they, you, marriage doesn't have to be between a man and woman. It could be between a man and a whole bunch of women or a man and a whole bunch of men and women or even with animals whatever these were these but they still call themselves christians that's what the nicolaitans and that is this thinking is 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 offensive to the lord and you can see how the, um jesus making this connection between the balaam teaching back then and nicolaitans in the time of pergamum is it's driven by um, a corrupt view of sex and although the church's strength is that they held to Jesus secretly, they held onto these sins. Compromise first begins in the heart and leads to external actions. Your lust will drive you to fall morally. It is not enough for non-Christians to hear you profess Jesus Christ while you allow yourself to live in, in, with secret sins. Because eventually those secret sins will find you out. You must be a person that is sensitive to all kinds of sins in your life, not just sexual sins. In fact, I think in the last several weeks uh, leading, actually even the last, ever since COVID began, uh, there's just been, I, just, I noticed that a lot of Christians attack each other in the way they describe situations. Now I expect this from the world. The world is going to say things about one another. They're, um, they're going to uh, confront each other in a way that's unloving. But I started noticing that even Christians themselves were not acting in a way that's pleasing to the Lord in the way that they speak, especially in social media. 
Um, there are pastors that are accusing other pastors for uh, not being faithful because they don't do this or that. And their congregations are going against other pastors because they think, oh, well, I am of this person and, and we believe this way that we should handle situations like this. And other churches are, are compromising. They don't do it this other way. And you understand that when we have these kind of conflicts, and especially if we don't do it in a loving and kind way, it diminishes our testimony before a watching world. Uh, the world sees that the Christians act just like the world and they, how they handle things, and it loses the ability for us to share the gospel with them because really they will just see our life as just like theirs. The only difference is we just call ourselves Christians. Um, many professing Christians, although they profess the right Jesus, that what comes out of their mouth is anything but kindness. It's filled with anger and even at times slandering and um, unloving and even at times even untrue. The people would rather be right in their own eyes than be right in, before the Lord's eyes. James chapter 3 verse 10 tells us this, from the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And we know that as Christians, some of the biggest compromises in our life is actually not the things that we're thinking about. We may be thinking, of course, I'm not going to murder people. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to do some of these sins. But there are other areas that we just turn a blind eye to that is actually causing us to lose our effectiveness in the world. Um, if you ever wonder then why our church is not a, uh, why, why, why don't we have such a, a, a huge impact in San Francisco? It may not be because um, well, we live in a very liberal place and it's very dark. It could be because we are dark ourselves that we ourselves are not holy, that we ourselves are not light. So why, how can we shine in a dark place when we are not lit for the Lord? Compromising your personal life will eventually be made known outwardly. You need to be mindful of your walk. You need to be mindful of what scripture has to say, not just in terms of the most obvious things of the world, but even the subtle things, because that's how sin works. Sin is very subtle. Um, it will make you think that you're defending truth. But yes, you can defend truth. But how do you defend truth is going to determine whether or not you even believe the truth to begin with. Just because you profess Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you live for Jesus. Because if you allow moral compromises into your life, sin is going to corrupt that. It's going to ruin your testimony. Sin always promises, but it never pays. If you live in sin, you will pay for it. And oftentimes, um, the first thing that will go is our gospel effectiveness to those outside and around us. What subtle or worldly sinful things that you have in your life that is offensive to the world to to the Lord? Are you professing Christ on one day and yet cursing other people in another? Remember, all the people that we you know that we don't agree with, whether they're believers or not, are still made in the image of God. And, when, and if we truly believe that, then the way that we engage in conversation must be filled with salt. That is what Colossians 4 talks about. The way, to, the way that we speak needs to be appropriate for the moment. And I think if there's one area in our life, especially in this time, with social media and everything, the one way that we can fail uh, morally is the way that we speak or the way that we tweet or whatever. The way that we communicate is going to be the thing that we need to master if we want to be a good testimony to the world. That's Pergamum's weakness, that they have this few sins, and most of them involve sexual sins. And I think if we just think about our own lives, what are some of our weaknesses that allows us to 
fail in a way of being a good testimony, testimony to those around us. So what are we supposed to do with this? Which leads to our last point this evening, Pergamum's response. Pergamum's response. As Jesus says, therefore repent, verse 16, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent means there's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Uh, you know God's word in order to live it. Or do, you, do you lack repentance because you don't know God's word or do you know God's word and choose not to repent? In both cases, they're wrong. You need to repent if you know God's word or, you, or not. If you, at, at this point right now, you should know that whatever sin is offensive, Lord, you need to repent of it. Don't coddle it. Don't feed it. Don't make excuses for it. Whether it is um, some sort of action or thought, we must repent of it. And again, it's changing up the mind first before you change up the action. Because you can change the action, but your heart can still crave it. Um, and you need to ask the Lord to remove that desire and give you godly desires, desires that are pleasing to him. If you don't repent, God will make it known to you through trials. Sin will cause you pain. This is why in Hebrews it speaks about how the, like a loving father disciplining his child because God knows what's best for his child. God knows that uh, sin is not what's best for them. Sin will make things worse. And if they continue in their sin, uh, it's going to lead to apostasy. Notice that Jesus said, the sword of my mouth. This is, again, a reference um, to, uh, to his word. In, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged two -edged sword, and his face like the sun shining in his strength. And again, this is referring to, his, to scripture, to his words. Pergamon received a literal uh, a, a word from the Lord, and, then, and, he's, and he bears this warning here that if you don't, he will wage war against you. Uh, he will wage war against a Pergamum here. Fearing God is, is, um, is it's, fearing God less is a tragedy in our, in our walk with the Lord. The results of our failure is that uh, they will be punished. In fact, that's exactly what happened going back to the Old Testament with, in Numbers 25, when Israel fell, uh, when, when, when the Israelites fell into the teachings of Balaam, um, 24,000 people were killed by the Lord because of their sexual sin. And yet here, Jesus threatens the same type of, he's trying, he's trying to re uh, remind them of what happened to the Israelites. He's using the same similar type of threats that if you continue on this way, he will wage war against those who live in sin. The church and individuals Christians in the church cannot tolerate sin of any kind. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. This is a call for Christians to get rid of sin in their life. Um, you notice this is there's a phrase hidden manna here. Um, I'm making a lot of Old Testament references, and actually, this book, the book of Revelation, it's it's like the calculus of the Bible. If the more you know of the Old Testament, the more these references make sense to you. Uh, so I'm going to make a like, again just because the text makes these references, I'm going to talk about them now. This hidden manna back then, in the Old Testament was. If you remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness? for the 40 years, God provided him, provided him with these manna that came out 
um, in the morning day. And they're like, what is this? And it's like, it's food. So they ate it and um, it tasted sweet, but it had like a 24 hour life, uh, life cycle. It was like, you can't keep it for the next day, except for the one on uh, you know, for the Sabbath. That's a unique type of because the Lord sustains it. But there was this one unique bread there uh, that there was put in the ark actually for my notes today. I drew a lot of pictures. So anyways, here, they paid the guy, here's the ark. They kept uh, one of the manas in the ark and actually that unique bread in there in the ark wasn't, wasn't going to decay. And it's cool because that's, this is in Exodus 16, 14. It tells them that this unique bread that's in there is not going to decay. And it's supposed to show that, um, that God is the one that provides. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who provides for them and, and sustains them. And this bread in there is supposed to be a symbol of that. Um, in fact, Jesus uses the same idea in John chapter 6, verse 48 to 51, where he said he's the bread of life, that the bread that was supposed to be in there was to be a reminder of God's provision and protection. That's actually ultimately found in Jesus Christ, that when you, if you have him, you, that's where eternal life comes from. So he's saying that if you uh, turn from your sins, here back in verse 17, if you turn from your sin, if you repent, if you overcome the things of this world, he'll give you this hidden manna, which is eternal life. And he, he expands this picture to maybe something that they might relate to. He said, here, I'll give them a white stone. It isn't like just like a white, random white rock with their name on it. It's like, oh, here's like a little a gift for you. Back then, during the, their athletic games, when they win, they'll, have this, they'll receive this white stone and they'll have put their name on it. And that allows them to go into this special banquet for all the winners. Remember, this is not... Uh, back, you know, they didn't have tablets or, you know, email or anything like that. So they, this is just their system that they use. And this idea is that you have the stone that lets you into this banquet so that you can enjoy the victories of, you know, all your hard work and everything in, in this competition. And Jesus is using this picture to show them that, look, I am going to give you something that's greater. And this thing that you carry, this, you're not actually going to go to heaven with the stone, but it's, again, it's just a picture, uh, it's like a word illustration thing uh, for you to know that when you get to heaven, you will be able to pass into glory because your name is going to be written on something that's better than the stone, but you're going to be, your name's written in the Lamb Book of Life. Your life should generally be more like Christ um, as time progresses. And if not, uh, then you will eventually compromise. And eventually that compromise leads to apostasy. You know, oftentimes when people make room for little sins in their life, what usually happens is when they fall into sin, they have one or two little decisions they could make. They could either confess it and repent, or they can hide it and continue in sin. And if they continue to, in, if they hide it and continue to sin, eventually the heart will be callous to it, and then they'll eventually deny it. So then here, Jesus is saying that if you overcome the things of the, you know, the sins of your sin, and you'll have this white stone or this hidden man, you have basically eternal life. But if you don't, then you'll lose it. Notice that at the end, he said, this is here, which no one knows but he who receives it. This means that it, no one here in our, in our church knows whether or not the person next to us is truly a believer. Only the person that has it knows it. You know, only the person who genuinely um, loves the Lord, they know it. And of course, the Lord knows it. But, no, but you know, people can fake it in the church. Um, I'm sure people in Pergamum, at one point, they were still saying, like, they would, they would speak truth of all the five points of Calvin, right? Even the, there was no Calvinism back then or in, in the way that we think it. But, you know, they have all the, the right doctrines. They have all the right doctrines. They say the right things. They believe the right things. They deny the right things. But in their own sinful, in their life, they, they're hiding a sin. 
that causes them to eventually deny the faith. And this is something that you and I need to be mindful of. A compromise the, comes from within. Um, you know, the, the church's ineffectiveness is because individual Christians are holding on to sin. If you want the gospel to advance in our community, you must be a holy individual. Collectively as a whole, each and every single one of us are faithful in our walk. We have a, a holy integrity. That's how we can be, uh, that's how we can leave a, a gospel impact in our society. You only be a light if you get rid of sin in your life. If the church is not effective in evangelism. It is not because of lack of knowledge or the lack of training, but a lack of discipline from sin. God will either discipline you for your sin or, or you will be disciplined because you didn't keep away from sin. Some of us love to profess the right things we live like we worship a pagan God. Don't make compromises if you want to be a healthy and godly individual. And I mean healthy in the sense of the spiritual sense. In the same way for our church, if we fail to be godly, we fail to address sin in our life or even address sin in those in our fellow brothers and sisters' life, we're allowing sin to fester in our church and it will, it will basically just diminish our effectiveness uh, to be a good testimony to the world. And that should be what matters to us because this isn't our home. This is just, we're here passing through. You know, this is our, our, the place that the Lord has placed us to do gospel ministry. And it's pointless if we do all of these different ministries, like all these boba things, all, I'm not saying these are bad, or these Thanksgiving events or Christmas events or whatever events. If we do all of these events, but we're hiding sin in our life, then really it, it's it, all the stuff that we're doing is useless because what God wants is that we are wholly devoted to him. Uh, God wants a holy people. God wants us to be, uh, to devote our, our heart, mind, and strength in following him. We need to, in order to do that, we need to get rid of sin in our life. Don't make compromises if you want to be a godly individual. May we as a church take Jesus' warning seriously because he says here, if you don't, he will wage a war against them. Now, I don't know what that might look like in our context. I do know that the Lord will discipline uh, if he feels this fit for individuals that they live in sin. I wonder if maybe a program got there in terms of the whole church or you know, a large group of the people in the church. And it would be a very terrible thing to be disciplined because of some sin that you're holding on to. Maybe we'd be mindful of the cracks and compromises in our own lives and repent of those things so that we can uh, be a, a faithful church so that the Lord will look at us and see us as a, a church, not just a church of compromises, but a holy church devoted to him. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this humble reminder of how dangerous compromises can be. Ultimately, compromises is offense to you. Uh, it, it's it's something that you hate, something that you um, that it, it, it's something that just offends you so much. You have to kill your son so that we can be free from it. Lord, give us a love for one another and confronting sin in each other's lives, 
And Lord, may we be humble so that when we are confronted with sin, that we don't become defensive, but are thankful that there are brothers and sisters who love you and love one another to be able to point out sin. Lord, help us individually, Lord, in our own private lives that um, we that we flee from all temptation, that we flee from all sin, that we stand firm in your word, and that we guard ourselves from the temptation that's from this world, as well as just even our own flesh. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you in your son's name. Amen.